future of America is at stake. And to those who say it'll cause a trade war, we are in a trade war. We have our clocks cleaned every day and lose jobs every day because of unfair Chinese practices. Welcome to Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Zoe Chase. Today is Friday, October 7th, and that was the senator from New York, Chuck Schumer, talking about China's currency. Today in the podcast, we tell you why people are occupying Wall Street. The media has been going around making a lot of fun of these protesters all this week. They don't have an agenda. They don't have any demands. No specifics. There's no specific goal or demand for this organization. I believe we have a planet money first. I think we are breaking the story in this very podcast. I think we will reveal for the first time in the national media what these protesters are actually for, why they're occupying Wall Street. But first, a man, we always know what he's for. He's for indicators. (laughs) Jacob Goldstein with the planet money indicator. Today's planet money indicator, it's nine. And it's nine in in two different ways, really. The unemployment rate in the U.S., it's been stuck right around 9% for nine months now. In other words, all year. The unemployment rate, it was 9.1% as of September. That's according to this morning's big jobs report. And yes, 9%, it's a very high unemployment rate for the United States. But I think even more important is the other nine. Nine months is a really long time to see such a high unemployment rate essentially frozen in place. Wait, are, are we just replaying the indicator from last yeah, month. I'm, I'm actually not from... here. I'm actually not here right, <laughs> right. now. It's why why did you just... even come in today? Like, I feel we were saying this in the office this morning. It just, we're desperately trying to find something new to say about nine plus percent unemployment, another month where the jobs numbers barely kept track with population growth, really didn't add any real employment for all those people unemployed. Give us something new. What's going on? So... You know, you can dig around in the numbers. The BLS has this incredible data dump. And and I did look through it. And, you know, you can see, well, construction finally started to add jobs in September. That's on the commercial side rather than the residential side. So that's a little bit interesting, a little bit hopeful. But, you know, really, it's important to look at the overall picture. And the overall picture is overwhelmingly static, which, of course, is very scary. But, you know, we still see the private sector adding some jobs, but not enough. We still see local governments cutting tens of thousands of jobs every month. And, you know, you can slice the unemployment rate all different kinds of ways, by age, by gender, by education. And we did all that on the blog. And what you see is at every level, Everybody is basically stuck. Including us. Here we are again. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Jacob. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks, guys. Okay. On to the podcast. So, Planet Money listeners, surely you've heard by now about the hundreds of people living and protesting in Zuccotti Park. It's a plaza near Wall Street in downtown Manhattan, and they've been there for the last couple weeks. Here in New York, it's just all-consuming. It's all over the media. You know, we see these protesters walking around. And the protests seem to be getting bigger and bigger. This week, a lot of labor unions joined in. Congress people have been coming out in support of the protesters. My dad called me today to ask if he should go. And My brother's flying in from Seattle to go to Wall Street and join the protesters. So, but, but you and I, Adam, we're Planet Money, and we cover a lot of what takes place on Wall Street. So we wanted to find out what exactly are these Wall Street protesters against. So we went to the park. 
park is crowded. It's a little dirty. It's it's not that big a square. It's just one block long, and the crowd skews mostly young and bearded, army jacketed and sweatshirted. And there are a myriad of signs against lobbyists, against banks, against the war. And it was like a detective job at first. Like, so, so what are these people for? And at first we realized everyone was giving us slightly different answers. Well, I'm here on my own agenda. Other people have their own agenda and here are what they're here for. We don't have one specific agenda in here. We don't have demands. Read your sign. College degree equals unemployment and lobbyist equals bribery. And then, thank you, Wall Street. Thank you, Wall Street. The first guy there refused to give us his name. The second person is Jillian Cipriano. She's a recent college grad from Staten Island. And she said the main reason she's here is she can't find a job and it makes her mad and she's frustrated with the political process. We ran into a punk from the Lower East Side who was against police brutality. We found grandmothers against the war. This girl from Brooklyn with a list of suggestions supporting everything from the carbon tax to libraries. And then we caught up with this guy who said he couldn't stand and talk to us because he was in a rush to get zombified. Can we walk with you? What does getting zombified mean, by the way? I'm zombie makeup to make myself represent a dead person. Gotcha. Now, you have a Ron Paul sticker? Sure do. Are you a libertarian, would you call yourself? I am, definitely. And is this... I know there's not one view, etc., but have you felt welcome here? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is all about community. We're not, we're not trying to marginalize anyone's voices. We're just trying to unite each other, you know? During the day, Zuccotti Park has the feel of, like, a festival. You know, there's free food out. People are playing music, wandering around, napping under trees. I saw a few people smoking joints. And we thought, all right, it's this big park full of independent thinkers, all of different views. Is there like a unified thing here? Is there is is there some way that this is different from any other park in Manhattan where there's lots of people wandering around doing whatever they feel like? How does this thing come together and be one thing? So everyone told us this park does come together at one point at night at seven o'clock. Everyone told us you guys have to go to the General Assembly. That's where decisions get made that affect this group. So we went. Check! Check! My name is Jeff. My name is Jeff. So you probably heard of this. This is the form of communication called the people's mic. The police won't allow bullhorns, so the crowd repeats every phrase said by the person addressing the crowd. The night we went, the meeting was being led by two people, facilitators. Facilitators. But before the facilitators can begin facilitating the meeting, this dude in a puffy overcoat leaps out of the crowd to make this point about the facilitators. These are positions of power. These are positions of power. They have the power to tell us we can't talk. They have the power to tell us we can't talk. They lead this discussion in a direction. They lead this discussion in a direction. If they never ask for our consent, if they never ask for our consent, their power is illegitimate. Their power is illegitimate. Okay, so there is one rule here, and the rule is that decisions are made by consensus. The group consents to proposals by waving their fingers in the air, kind of like jazz hands. And then if they don't agree, they also do jazz hands, but upside down. And as you can imagine, it's hard to get 400 people to consent to anything. But soon enough, the night we went, all 400 people or so consented to the facilitators facilitating the meeting. 
And so we learned the General Assembly, this is where everyone gets together, but there's also these working groups, these subcommittees that meet throughout the day, the Sanitation Committee, the Finance Committee, the Legal Committee, and they all report back to the General Assembly. And so the night we were there, the Comfort Committee had a proposal about how to allocate some of the tens of thousands of dollars that have been donated to the group. We need sleeping bags. We need sleeping bags. Sleeping bags cost money. Sleeping bags cost money. We would like to request. We would like to request about two thousand dollars. About two thousand dollars. So people had a lot of questions for Sleeping Bag Man about his proposal. Does the proposal include a sales tax, which goes to the government? How will the sleeping bags be kept clean? My question is more pragmatic. My question is more pragmatic. Should we not just buy fabric? Should we not just buy fabric? And construct construct sleeping bags. And construct sleeping bags. Now, Zoe, what we realized was this General Assembly, this isn't just some logistical asterisk to the protest. This is what this whole thing is about. This is what they're for. This process itself, participatory democracy, that is what this group is demanding. I found an ex-Marine on the sidelines, Brian Phillips. He said exactly that. We have people speak, everyone votes on it, and we come to an agreement. And that's how we want society to be. That is how you want society to be. I don't think that this is by any means an efficient, particularly effective, or uh, or the only direct democracy process. It's not. This is Andrew Smith. He's facilitated a couple times at the General Assembly. There are many other models. This is the one we got, and we're going with it. You know, and it and it works to empower I mean, it some people. It would be more effective, I would think. Like if you had this many people say and they were all for or against some specific thing. Like, we're but, all for the Volcker rule. Let's just go nuts and in, in favor of the Volcker rule. You know, Of course, it would be more effective. It would be more effective. But you say, of course it would be more effective. Like, that's a horrible thing to be. Is effective bad? Um, effective will disenfranchise people around here. People will feel like they're not getting their voices heard. They'll feel like the, the, the move... The, the affect is moving in a direction that they do not agree with, and they will quit the movement. It seems like that whole this whole organization of Occupy Wall Street is like a structure for people to bring their issues to and put them on, not like you have your own issue that yes. you're fomenting. Yes, I like it. Is that? I agree. Agreed. I just made that up. Perfect. You're a That's what it's all you're about. Not a movement. Yeah, sure. exactly. <laughs> awesome. You guys can run with that. There's a narrative right there. We, can, we got it. I think we got it. It's a venue, not a movement. Standing around and discussing what they want, that's what they want. That's their hope. So we at Planet Money, we're economics reporters, so we immediately started to wonder, they want all of society run on this basis where lots of groups, where everyone's equal gets together and just as a group decides what they want? Could that work? And and how would that work? Like just in the pragmatic stuff of like getting people the things they want and figuring out what to do with food and clothes and you know just the, the basic structure of an economy. So it turns out we found this economist who has been working on this problem for 40 years. We caught him when he was on his way to occupy Portland where he- On his bicycle. On his bicycle. And he said that, yes, for 40 years, he's been crafting this proposal for exactly this vision of society. His name's Robin Hanel. I call myself a libertarian socialist. 
Wait, to wait, say wait. Those I got to interrupt you. Yeah, that's. I literally think of those as 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 opposites. You know, the, the that's right. Um, if you call yourself a libertarian socialist in the United States, they think, oh, you're like Ron Paul or you know Hayek, or they think, oh, you're a socialist, and that means Soviet socialist. So it's. I, I always hesitate to say that's what I am, but I believe that is an accurate way I can describe myself. Robin Hanel teaches economics at Portland State University. But earlier in his academic life, he was a math major, and that helped me understand where his whole theory came from. He basically started pondering a puzzle. In the waning days of the Soviet Union, when, when people like him, left-wing progressives, you know, really soured on the Soviet model, they were stuck with this problem. Wait, we don't like American-style capitalism, and we don't like Soviet or Chinese-style communism. So what could we do? Could we create an economic system that was more democratic than capitalism and more democratic than, than communism as it's practiced now? And what he came up with is called participatory economics, and it works a lot like the way the general assemblies that occupy Wall Street are structured. So first of all, there's no owners, there's no managers, everyone is equal, and people gather in working groups to do business. The easiest way to picture it for me is is a factory. So you're a shoe factory. All the workers in the shoe factory gather and decide how we're going to run our shoe factory. One committee might come up with a proposal of what kinds of shoes we're going to make and, and which styles and how many. Another committee would create a proposal for how we're all going to be compensated. So he said some might decide everyone makes exactly the same amount, but he imagines a lot of worker groups will decide, no, if you work harder, you deserve more stuff. The harder you work, the, the more you make, and it's not your boss deciding, it's your colleagues. And basically, they simply have to do what is a very difficult job and sometimes contentious. They have to essentially review one another's performance and decide, has somebody worked harder? You know, has somebody put in more effort? Has somebody made greater sacrifices than somebody else? And if so, then they are awarded, you know, by their co-workers Robin recommended we, we skim pretty quickly over, over the next step. He spelled it out in several books. But basically, there's this other process for how all the different working groups all over the region or all over the country that want a little more leather or want a little more rubber, there's sort of a central processing system that uses, as he says, a very simple computer algorithm he's come up with, which he says can determine supply and demand issues very efficiently without using what we in capitalism use, a, a price signal, where you just, if you want more leather, you just find out what the price is. And if lots of people want leather, the price goes up and you maybe substitute something else. The other thing the price signal does is it turns on a dime. You know, if if there's a disastrous frost destroying lots of orange crops in Florida, suddenly oranges are more expensive immediately all over the country. And we asked him how his system would respond to sudden shocks since his system requires people to mail these proposals in from all over the country. It may be the case that one of the things that this system has a great has more difficulty in doing is making on-the-fly adjustments um, because it's more participatory. We may discover that in the real world when this system is implemented that that is a place where it perhaps is a little weaker than some other systems that have gone before it. I'm, I'm perfectly willing to accept the fact that perhaps there's going to be some disadvantages to doing things this way as well as some tremendous advantages. Another issue that we wanted to ask Canel about was what about us, the, the consumers? You know, how do we buy stuff? There's basically not really money in his world, at least the way we use money. So 
the way you purchase, you have to decide a year in advance what you're going to consume. So your neighborhood gets together, you have another meeting, you submit a plan to a consumption council of what you guys all want to consume over the next year. So you decide how much toilet paper you're going to need, how many pillows or T-shirts and iPods and iPads. And your neighborhood consumption council sends its request to this centralized computer algorithm. Which is a very big difference from how we live today. I mean, I, I have no idea how many potatoes or eggs I'm going to want next August, say. This year would have been really hard for me because, you know, in January, I had no idea I was going to be having a kid at the end of the year, but I am. <gasps> oh, Adam, you're kidding. Congrats. This is the first I've heard of this. Congratulations. She's kidding because Zoe, like the Amazon Corporation, know that my <laughs> consumption patterns have changed rather dramatically in the last few weeks as I'm buying all this baby stuff. And I asked Hanel about that. How does his system account for changes in what we want? How is that going to play out? Well, when you go through the checkout line of your neighborhood distribution center or stores or whatever, um, they're basically going to... They're going to keep track. They know what your approved consumption request for the year was. They know what you asked for. It's in their computer. And they're going to basically start giving you little tips. You know, at this rate, you know, you're not going to be consuming as much of this as you asked for. At this rate, you're taking a lot of stuff you never asked for. Another thing I got to say that I thought a lot about listening to Hanel is, my God, this sounds like a lot of meetings. I feel like I have structured my life around avoiding meetings as much as possible. And he said, are you kidding? I'm an academic. I have been invited to lots of really awful, boring meetings. I can't stand meetings. Then why'd you create an economics built on meetings? Yeah. If the decisions I care about are going to be made at the meetings that I'm, that I'm going to, then I think there's a lot more incentive for people to go to meetings. He's saying if people feel like their voice will be actually heard, then they'll be more into meetings. But if you really just can't get down with meetings, then you don't have to show up to make your voice heard. It's participatory, not mandatory. Although, he says, if you don't participate, there's a good chance you're not going to like the outcome. Now, obviously, there are a lot of things that people would object to here. But Robin Hanel has sort of a sales pitch to the Occupy Wall Streeters. He says to them, you know what, you're brand new at this, and that's fabulous, and you're bringing energy that my generation has long since lost. But keep in mind, people like me, we've been thinking about this for a very long time, and we've thought through some of the issues that you're going to come up with as you're pursuing this participatory democracy model of society. But Hanel says in no way does he hope that his generation, the older guys, take over this movement. He says he is so excited about what's going on right now. Because for him, like a real radical leftist, it's been a pretty lousy 20 years. You know, except for those anti-globalization skirmishes in Seattle in the late 90s, there just has not been a lot in our culture to, to really appeal to someone like him. So this is a very exciting moment for a guy like that. Ever since this crisis hit... I've been wondering, is there going to be a progressive, a looking forward wake up call here in America? And I'm a lifelong leftist. And I remember tears came to my eyes when I was at the Battle of Seattle, because I didn't know whether I would ever see that kind of demonstration again in my country. Um, I feel that way about this. Now, we should tell the folks at the General Assembly who, who don't already know, Robin Hanel's model, he calls it participatory economics or PARICON, is just 
one of the models of an economics built on this small group democracy idea. We found out there are a ton of them. There's something called mutualism, analytical Marxism. There are dozens of different named forms of anarchism. Horizontalism, syndicalism, post-autistic economics. That's a thing. Transformative economics. We could go on. And each of these has its own approaches, its own policies and structures, although they all broadly follow this model of participatory decision-making. If they could actually create a society based on participatory democracy on that level, it would be among the most radical changes ever contemplated for America. And it's tough because before you change America, you need to get 400 people in a park to agree on precisely how you want to change America. So they're meeting every night for several hours. One guy who said he didn't speak for everybody proposed a timeline that they will have a consensus view with a complete platform by November 20th. Chasing the night to make it right. As always, let us know what you thought of today's show. Email us at planetmoney at npr.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. And please do visit our blog, npr.org slash money. Jess, our wonderful producer, has another experiment she's running right now on the blog. It closes on Monday, October 10th, so you have the weekend. We need you to pick a number. I'm Adam Davidson. I'm Zoe Chase. Thanks for listening. Told you to wait, but it's too late.